A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Hero can be anyone, even a man doing something as simple and reassuring as putting a coat around a young boy's shoulders to let him know the world hadn't ended. Hey, Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day. Welcome to Screen Perspectives, a podcast produced by the Pittsburgh Film Office to share how people build successful careers in the screen industry, be it in film, TV, streaming, etc. Screen Perspectives was born out of many conversations with industry professionals, sometimes over dinner, sometimes over drinks, and a lot of times driving around looking at the wonderful diversity of locations in the southwestern Pennsylvania region. Thousands of people make their living in the film, TV, streaming business, which is nationally an over $28 billion a year industry. Locally, it is responsible for over $150 million in new money to the southwestern Pennsylvania region's economy. There really is no direct pathway to success in this industry. It's a lot of hard work, networking, and you have to account for a little bit of luck to be successful. The Pittsburgh Film Office is excited to share these amazing individual stories with you so you can learn how they did it and determine your best path forward. Screen Perspectives is hosted by me, Don Kieser, director of the Pittsburgh Film Office, and the incredible Kevin Smith, screenwriter and screenwriting instructor at the University of Pittsburgh. Our guest on today's podcast is the one and only Jill Danton. Jill Danton is the vice president of production for Boat Rocker Studios, also known as the company that produces American Rust, that films right here in southwestern Pennsylvania starring Jeff Daniels and Maura Turney. Some of her other well-known projects include Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Lizzie McGuire, The Muppets, and Queer Eye. Known for her outstanding contributions to the entertainment industry, Jill has built an impressive legacy through her accomplishments. From captivating performances to notable productions, join us as we delve into the multifaceted career of the talented Jill Danton. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Dawn Kieser, and welcome to Screen Perspectives. We're thrilled to have Jill Danton, the Executive Vice President of Production for Boat Rocker Studios, which may not mean much to you, but what it means to us is American Rust. So we're thrilled you're here, Jill. Welcome to Screen Perspectives. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And with me is the amazing Kevin Smith. And Isaiah Stewart of the University of Pittsburgh. So we've got a great crew today, and we're excited to chat with Jill about her life in the movie business. Very good. Let's do it. So Jill, do you want to start with telling us how much you love Pittsburgh? I love Pittsburgh. As Dawn knows, um, I was first in Pittsburgh many, many eons ago. I think it was when dinosaurs still roamed the earth. And... um, it was a great town then. It's a great town now. I mean, it for me, I will say it's it's co-equal, co-equal in my mind with Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the sense of a film commission, a crew and infrastructure that really cares deeply about filmmaking and making it easy for filmmakers to do what they do. Um and really, it's a it's a town with amazing resources, proximity to other resources, 
and just the whole vibe of the town for filmmaking people, I think is, is bar none. I, I would say, except for Albuquerque, those are the two places in my mind in our country that it's, you know, it's, it's so easy to get things done and everyone is so receptive and there is really a love for filmmaking. It's not just like punching a clock. Well, it's interesting because Albuquerque may have the Sandia Mountain. Uh, we have Mount Washington. So yes. we'll teach them a lesson. <laughs> but uh, I want to take you even further back, Jill. All right. Ooh, okay. I want to take you dinosaurs? back. How far can you go before the dinosaurs? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> She's okay. She's a spring chicken. Um, here's my thing. I want to hear about how this got started in the little seed planted in when you were hanging out probably at Tin Lizzie's over in New Rochelle by uh, Iona <laughs> College. Um, and you were doing what? And you said, I'm going to go on to become this phenom producer. Well, what happened for me actually was quite accidental. I, one of my majors at Iona was um, communications. And that was kind of, at that time anyway, kind of a hodgepodge of radio, TV, and advertising. And again, back in those olden days, there wasn't like e-entertainment where everyone knows what's happening behind the scenes of making, you know, TV shows and films like there is now. So really the class protocol didn't, didn't really tell you about working in the industry. It was more about the technology and the outward facing results of those industries. Right. And so it wasn't really a major, one of my majors that was leading me toward, oh, I'm going to have a, a career in this or anything. It was just a major that kind of interested me. And so as part of my major, um, I did an internship at a, a radio station that's probably still in New York called WFAS. And as part of that internship, I would help them with various things at the station. And then I was allowed to use one of their studios that was dormant, um, to record some of my homework for the course, right? So I would have to do fake radio commercials and things as part of my coursework homework. And so this one afternoon after I was done with my interning hours, um, I was in the studio and I had recorded my voice, you know, um, doing a radio commercial, fake radio commercial, and I was playing it back. And in walks the station manager, this fellow named Rob Roy. And he walks in and I'm like, oh my God, he's walking in. And I stopped my playback. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm allowed to be in here to do my homework for my, and he's like, whoa, 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 no, you're, you're fine in here. What, what was that that was playing? I'm like, oh, it's just my homework. I was doing a fake radio commercial for my, and he's like, that's your voice? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you have an amazing radio voice. And I'm like, oh, thank you, sir. And he's like, we have an opening. A DJ is leaving on the overnight, the graveyard shift. Would you be interested in being a DJ? Now, if I had fast forwarded to me now, I would say absolutely not, sir. I'm not prepared for this. I've never DJ. I'd be too petrified. But back then I was just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Why not? I knew nothing. And so he put me with this DJ that was to train a little bit um, for about a week, um, who was not on the overnight, but the shift before, the, the after dinner shift. 
And so I learned how to, you know, do everything in the studio. And, and so I became a DJ there on the graveyard shift. And I would have to go and do rip and read news and read newscasts during my show at the top and bottom of every hour and, you know, play and, you know, take calls and play music. And anyway, so I was a DJ, radio DJ, and I was still in college. I think it was in my last two years of college. And then I continued doing it after college. And by that time I had, I think they put me on the weekend afternoon shift and a couple of, like I got some better shifts, right? But I hated it. I secretly hated it because I felt like I'm alone in the studio. I didn't, like, like you hear radio DJs talking about how I can feel my audience, you know, like I feel like I'm in people's living rooms. No, I felt like I was in a studio <laughs> alone talking to myself like a crazy woman. And so, but I couldn't tell anyone that I hated it because everyone's like, oh my God, you're a DJ. It's so cool. Like, uh, you know, whatever. And so I did it for about like the last two years of college and then almost one year out of college. And this one afternoon I was, I was out at lunch or something with a friend who was in an adjacent industry, but knew more about the world. She was a little older than I. And she said, oh, Jill, it's so great. You're, you know, I go, you know what? I hate, and I made a confession for the first time to somebody that I absolutely hated it. And so she was like, well, you know what? She goes, well, why did you ever think about going into pro like production or TV or film? I'm like, what, what do you mean? Like She's like, you were a communications major. You don't know, like, there are jobs, like, making the movies. Like, I go, oh, that sounds fantastic. And so I was like, how would I do this? And she goes, well, go down to the mayor's office of film and television in New York City, and they have listings, and just go knock on doors of the production offices and say, you know, oh, I, I'll be a gopher. I'll make Xerox copies. I'll fetch sandwiches, whatever, and you can get a job as a PA. I go, okay, I'm going to do that. So that, <laughs> so that very afternoon I called up Rob Roy. That was his birth name. Don't you think the station manager was it an invented name? We'll never know. And so I called him. I said, Hey Rob, I go to Jill. I said, look, I so appreciate this opportunity. I've really enjoyed like, working at the station, but I'm going to go into film and television. And so I'm giving you my week's notice because I got, you know, I'll have a job and I, you know, whatever. He goes, Jill, he goes, do you, you already have a job in film? I go, no, 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 not yet, but I'm going to go down and, you know, I knock on doors and I'll get a job and all that. He goes, Jill, it's not that easy. Jill, have lunch <laughs> with me, please. Because I know even if you don't like radio, like you're a nice looking girl, like you could be a news anchor. Like, like there's another place where you can go with this path you're already on. I go, no, no, Rob, look, I don't have time because I have to go to the mayor's office of film and television. And I just wouldn't listen to him. And so I quit my job. And so I went knocking on doors and sure enough, I got a PA job and then I got another PA job and I was running around getting pastrami sandwiches for producers and Xeroxing things. And so that's how it all began. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a very random, ill-conceived, <laughs> perhaps missed opportunity. I could have been Diane Sawyer, maybe. Who knows? Story of 
story of failure and mismanagement <laughs> of my own career. And <laughs> that was a spectacular story, by the way. That's just spectacular. Oh, like a spoken like a New Yorker right there. Um, yes, so you're growing up over in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And it, a tremendous amount of influences. Uh, before we get on to your career, what were your influences when it came to your creative sense of television early on when you were young? I had none whatsoever. I mean, I was the Brady Bunch generation, right? I mean, we watched Brady Bunch, like, so that creative sensibility wise, I should probably never even utter those words, right? <laughs> so, I mean. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isaiah, it was a TV show that had a yeah. bunch of kids yeah. in it. I didn't hurt the awards. Marsha always makes such a big deal out of everything. Jan, if those had been your awards and Marsha had dumped them somewhere, wouldn't you be upset too? I guess. But every time Marsha turns around, they hand her a blue ribbon or something. Oh, now, Jan, you know that isn't so. Marsha's worked very hard for those things. Well, all I hear all day long at school is how great Marsha is at this or how wonderful Marsha did that. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Oh, that's a, okay. Predominantly okay. white. Yes, yes, like, Kind of like friends. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so I didn't have any lofty influences whatsoever. I mean, I wish I could say, yes, I studied the Maltese Falcon. And I, <laughs> you know, I ate recorder and had my parents act it all out in Kabuki. No. So, um, so in fact, you know, there were no lofty influences. You know, I came from a very lower middle class background and we had no cultural anything going on. So I had, I had no background in, in order to contribute anything, if that's the question. <laughs> I, I was ill get... suited for my destiny. <laughs> I'm still trying to get the image of, of uh, your parents with like pasty white face on right now. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Me too. I'm all <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that was very good. Then how did you go from PAing to your first series and first opportunity to show your chops as a producer? Well, the funny part is it happened pretty quickly. I did a couple of PA gigs, and I think on my third one, I got um, I got a job at a place. It was called TVI. I forget even what it stood for, but it was these two producers who they were older gentlemen who um, basically ran this multi-suite kind of little production company that would, I mean, sometimes they would do entire shows if they were shooting all in New York, but a lot of their work too was at that time, you know, LA was a huge Hollywood hub for real before tax incentive days, obviously. And um, so they would do most of certain movies of the week or mini series or series in LA at studios. And then like compile all the portions that were boots on the ground out at New York City locations that couldn't be mimicked on stage in LA. And they would bring us that work and we would produce those portions, right? And then we would rent out some of our suites and manage our suites for other New York City productions, et cetera. So I got a job on some, I think it was a pilot or something with them. And I think quickly they saw that I was <laughs> kind of a, uh, a banshee, if you will, and started kind of running their whole operation almost <laughs> like right away. 
Um, and so they're like, okay, she's this kid's gonna stay in the picture. So, um, <laughs> so I quickly became kind of their company manager. Um, I would, uh, you know, production coordinate some of their shows, associate produce some of their shows on the post side, just basically did whatever needed to be done. And so, um, so out of that, I started getting pretty consistently what I guess would now be called sort of production supervisor jobs, which are kind of UPM, because one of the two producers of this this older team um, was uh, was a D, was a DGA member, so he would hold the UPM position. Um, the other gentleman would hold the line producer position. Um, and I would be the production supervisor actually doing both of their jobs. Um, so yeah, that's how it kind of began. Such an underachiever. Um, yeah. <laughs> go ahead, Don. Oh, I just, I find it fascinating how many people started as production assistants because we always talk about that's how you got to start, right? Everybody does it. And at the Golden Globes, it's what Spielberg brought up, right? That he always takes care of the PAs. So do you take a special interest in the production assistants? Uh, absolutely. Production? Absolutely. Um, when I was freelance producing, obviously I came into direct contact with crew members a lot more than I do in my current role. But then um, I would always... Uh, you know, connect with the PAs and urge them to, out of the experience, not just look at it as this job, this role, but like, what is turning you on about this in general? Like, where do your interests actually lie? I told them that that is the time and the place that it's best as an observer of themselves in this environment to figure out what is really your calling in this industry, because there's so many paths you can take. And this is the moment when you can basically matriculate to anything you want. You have full freedom to pick and choose. Like, um, so, you know, and I, I, you know, I, I still believe that is absolutely true. You know, that that's the time when a lot of people are maybe feeling most powerless, but it's the moment in their career they're they're most powerful in terms of their options, you know? When you're on set, what, in your opinion, what makes a great PA? Awareness. You know, um, I think that there are probably PAs that, you know, again, if you're a set PA or you're an office PA or whatever that job is right at this moment on this one project, some can get a little bit of sort of myopic, like, oh, I'm just here to file papers or I'm just here... But the more awareness, situational awareness of everything around you that you have, the more you can insert yourself to help out, create a connection with someone on the show in a hierarchy position that you otherwise may not have connected with, be noticed, insert yourself into something that you help out with something that maybe wasn't in your immediate path. But you're like, wow, I really enjoyed this interaction. Maybe I, you're creating your own opportunities out of your awareness. Um, so that that is what I think is the most important thing. Boy, is that good advice. That's, gr that's really good advice. Uh, I, I, okay, so let's take you back. I want to do I one of these we were things. Already 
back. I was already back. Uh, we haven't gotten that. We, well, we went back, <laughs> but we haven't made our way. We haven't made our way forward yet. I was That's all all. Way back in the hot tub time machine. Hold on. <laughs> Let me get my hair. Ah, ah, hot tub time machine. That's spectacular. So you had all these incredible productions of 400 plus, and I'm gonna, I want to get to some of these, but which one, in your opinion, stood out as your breakthrough for what you for your career mm. and why well i mean that's kind of a tough one because i mean there can be technically breakthrough meaning the first full hands-on producing gig mm -hmm. i ever got handed which was harry and the hendersons mm -hmm. but i'm not sure necessarily that in terms of my development into the producer I ultimately was, if that was the most pivotal, because it was still kind of a learning time for me in terms of some of the things as a full-on producer that come your way, both good and bad, and how you're going to deal with them, right? <clears throat> so I would sort of say maybe... One of the most pivotal was um, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. only because that particular show, like my career was already doing really well. Um, but that show was unusual in the sense that um, they had done a pilot for it and um, they were going into series, but they had a really miserly budget, like. I know we always hear, oh, the budget's not, an, but this was a ridiculously mm. low budget going <laughs> into series. Mm -hmm. And so they actually were having trouble. I did not know this when I interviewed for the job, but they were having trouble finding a producer who was willing to do it because the minute producer would hear the amount of money they had to produce each episode, they're like, yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> nice talking to you. <laughs> um, so in any event, so when I went in to meet John Worth and Josh Friedman, mm -hmm. you know, I was probably the 10th, you know, that had gone in to meet them. And I was just like, they told me the budget level. I was like, okay, we can figure out how to do this. And I was all like, we let's, you know, roll mm -hmm. up our sleeves. So they're like, let's hire her. <laughs> She's too stupid <laughs> to know what a shit show this is going to be. So, um, but the truth of the matter was that we became out of the hardship of having to produce this show that had massive visual effects. We had a 26 member standing stunt team, a 30 wow. member standing special effects team. It was like it, the show was so big for its boots and its budget with a very unforgiving studio, Warner Brothers, who they're just very bottom line studio, like, ah, it's your problem, figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, that we became such a team um, that nothing was impossible, right? Yeah. And it was the first show where, like, I always had sort of a penchant for taking different types of shows. Like, I started out as a sitcom producer, my first full producing mm -hmm. show, but then I would gravitate toward every type of genre because it just kept me interested and I felt like I kept my toolbox filled. Like I'd have different, you know, uh, solutions available to apply to anything, the more diverse my genre credits were. Right. So it was the first show where everything I had in my toolbox to date 
was being applied constantly, right? <laughs> and we did so many cool things in that series that were just kind of for the time, especially just that you did that in an episode of television. Um, and it was just a very creative, mentally stimulating, you know, experience. And so um, that is the one that really I was like, okay, like I'm in my zone. It, that's that's an amazing thing. And I want to go diverse genre credits. I, that's one of the notes I made when I, uh, of course, yeah, obviously I was well aware of uh, your incredible work, but I'm looking at this going, okay, wait, Law and Order LA, The Night Shift, Phil the Future, Lizzie McGuire, Queer Eye <laughs> for the Straight Guy, Star Trek Discovery, Elmo's Musical Adventure. Muppets, I did many mu Muppet shows. <laughs> the Muppet show with our special guest star, Miss Candace Bergen. Woo! Uh, yeah, and I've been on the Henson lot many a time where my old manager used to be. But that be and I, I so I'll be thinking of you next time I'm out there. By the way, but that being said, that's I, I've never seen a producer with credits that diverse. And I constantly preach to my students: your strength is in your diverse. It's like a like a portfolio, just like stocks yeah. is about your diversified portfolio. Did that help you ascend because of your diversity? And in what ways? You know. I no, I don't think so, actually, because like when I did Harry and the Hendersons, it was a time at NBC Universal, actually, then it wasn't NBC, it was just Universal, um, that they had almost all their stages were filled with sitcoms, right? Mm -hmm. And mine was a single camera mm -hmm. sitcom, meaning it was an audience base. We were still yeah. on tripods, but we were uh, not tripods, uh, pedestals, but yeah. we were film camera. Mm -hmm. and once in a while, we would go on to the back lot to shoot some single camera type of mm -hmm. scenes, right? Mm -hmm. The other shows rarely did that. But I would always see those producers who were older than me, wiser than me, all of that, and had fallen into the rut of, oh, I'm doing a sitcom. Oh, Universal's offered me another sitcom and another. And I can just, you know, just coast out my career doing sitcoms, right? That may seem to them like, oh, that's great because they can just ride it out and get their next job and the next job and the next job. But I would always know when one of those other shows were going onto the back lot to shoot a single camera scene because it was like a fire drill. Everyone's running around with their hair on fire. <laughs> and I'm just like, look at this. See, this is because they're just not used to problem solving or having mm -hmm. anything outside of the rote little railroad tracks they're on. Yeah. And I made a note to myself, I said, never be that person. Mm. Right. Mm. And so I probably could have stayed at Universal after Harry and the Hendersons and just done more and more shows like that. And that would probably have been easier because I didn't even need to, you know, look for anything, but it just yeah. didn't turn me on. And I didn't feel like it was the best thing based on what I had witnessed, experienced. So I just started throwing my hat in the ring for anything that would come up that would seem more interesting, something I hadn't tried before, etc. You've been listening to episode 16 of Screen Perspectives. 
Screen Perspectives is hosted by Don Keyser and Kevin Smith. Produced and engineered by Max Glider, Isaiah Stewart, and Jennifer Booker. Music by Isaiah Stewart. Special thanks to today's guest, Jill Danton, the Pittsburgh Film Office, and to the University of Pittsburgh. Screen Perspectives is a production of the Pittsburgh Film Office.